just out of nowhere, Adam Driver will speak in my brain going, outer space. Like that just pops into my head sometimes. So yes, I do agree with you there. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are the co-host from San Diego, California. And Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. I have been reading a little bit about the background lore on Kangaroo Jack. Do you know anything about this? What? Do you remember the film Kangaroo Jack? Sure. Early 2000s kid vid fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, before we get into that, uh, I, 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 I. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, <laughs> burying the lead there. <laughs> I'll come back to it. On this episode, we are going to be talking about the tragedy of the Scottish play on Apple TV. <laughs> no, we're talking. We are talking about the tragedy of Macbeth, uh, the the one. Okay, we're not in a theater. That's the rule. That's the and and it's the rule is uh, you can't say the Scottish king's name in a theater, uh -huh. uh, uh, specifically during a production of Macbeth, unless it's like you know in the unless you're rehearsing, unless you're actively like performing. You can say anytime outside of a theater and in that superstition has kind of just snowballed into you can never say yeah. the name Macbeth, but we, we can say it because, <laughs> A, we're talking about the the and it's not even the play. It's a movie. Right. The uh, film, a, the latest film adaptation of uh, of Macbeth, The Tragedy of Macbeth by Joel Cohen. And at the end of the podcast, yes. we are going to be doing for the streaming homework some kind of wonderful mm -hmm. and we also are going to be talking a little bit more broadly about the coen brothers uh body of work but before that kangaroo jack okay what are you talking about <laughs> so you know I, I was we were in high school or whatever when that movie came out so obviously i didn't have any real urge to see kangaroo jack mm -hmm. But apparently there Jack is stands everywhere or gasping in shock right now. Right. Uh, apparently there is background lore that we should know about. Okay. Um, so somebody somebody tweeted, I feel everyone between the ages of 20 to 29 should be eligible for financial compensation for being lied to about the plot of Kangaroo Jack. You expect to see the funny rapping hoodie kangaroo only to be instead given an action comedy in quotations, barely featuring him. And he doesn't talk. So what? I, I, what? I, I looked at the replies and somebody says here, it's because Kangaroo Jack was originally an R rated heist film and halfway through shooting Warner Brothers told them to make it into a PG movie and added more of the kangaroo since that was the only thing that test audiences liked in the first cut. What? 
right? What? <laughs> that is wild. Right. Okay, I went from being not interested in this subject at all to now I need to see the David McNally cut of Kangaroo, of Kangaroo Jack. Jack. Apparently, yeah. What so, the fuck? Yeah, um, I'm looking at the the production notes on the Wikipedia. It says, initially the film was titled Down and Under and was shot as a mob comedy in the style of Midnight Run. Principal photography was supposed to begin in Jacksonville, Florida. The film was shot in Australia in August 2001 and originally included cursing, sex, and violence, and only one scene with a kangaroo. However, when the film's producer saw that the rough cut, when when the producers saw the first rough cut, they realized that it wasn't working as expected. Inspired by positive responses to the kangaroo scene in the early test screenings, as well as the marketing campaign, Behind the recently released Snow Dogs, the production <laughs> shifted the marketing yes, focus. The famously successful Snow Dogs. It probably did well. I don't know. Um, the production shifted kill, the marketing wasn't that one focus. Of those movies that uh, didn't that like kill Cuba's Oscar that year or something? I don't know. Oh, I mean, he 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 was on thin ice anyway. Anyway, um, the production shifted the marketing focus away from that of the dark mafia comedy to that of the family-friendly animal picture. Extensive new footage that replaced the animatronic kangaroo with a CGI one that wrapped was shot, and the film was edited down to a PG-rated family animal comedy. Even though Adam Garcia voiced Kangaroo Jack, he was not credited with the role. Okay, well, I don't know about the, that last part there, but and I guess the the talking kangaroo scene is only like one dream sequence, and it's I don't know. I mean, I you learn something every day. That is wild stuff. <laughs> I, oh my god. Could you imagine how heartbreaking that would be to be in the middle of not even in the middle, to be basically done, done. with a movie yeah. and to have them come back and say, "Okay, we screened this." Mhm. Test audiences did not care for large majority of the movie. <laughs> so we would like you to make a new movie about a kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> right. So sp speaking of things ruining people's careers, I felt like this Jerry O'Connell took a huge hit. Yeah. From this from this movie. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like like you're signing on to do, you know, Midnight, Midnight Run, Run with a kangaroo. <laughs> No, not I mean, even I, not even really midnight run with a scene with the kangaroo may I, okay they they compare it to midnight run in their article but like mafia comedies or sure buddy comedy crime whatever but yeah you signed on as an actor for that and then they're like okay now we need you to to come back mm. for another month of shooting <laughs> With this golf ball that's going to be a CGI <laughs> kangaroo that is now your sidekick. By the way, here's a new 50 pages. Right. I hope trash. I mean, I hope to God that they had good agents that were able to renegotiate their contracts just for the extra work alone. <laughs> oh, that That is like such a great example of a uh, studio just like making a movie worse. I, I'm sure yeah. that 
down and under in Australia or whatever it was called uh. probably wasn't great. Uh, but at least it was a, a something, right? At least it was like trying to be a movie. Oh man, yeah. that is wild. So the budget is estimated here at 60 million. Oh my god. The opening weekend was 16 million and I guess it grossed over overall and counting worldwide grosses 88 million so it still made a profit. I guess. Even as Kangaroo Jack. So maybe that wasn't the wrong choice but it was not the choice that any of those actors wanted to to, to do. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Wow. I feel like I I just gotta know. I gotta know <laughs> what's going on with that. Yeah. yeah, I didn't I didn't believe him. I thought that that subtweet was just um pulling the leg until I read the actual Wikipedia. Yeah, that's wild. Anyway, enough of that. <laughs> Before we get into the tragedy of Macbeth. We wanted to talk a little bit about the Coen Brothers filmography we have before in other contexts, but we've never done the underrated, overrated, best, worst game with that them. That we remember. I feel like we, we, we might have done this we before. Might, but, I was but, having weird deja vu while putting my list together, but I was like, I can't remember when it would have been. I and mean, then you we, said we you talk about the Coen Brothers a lot. They come up. They come up. Um, you know, some of my favorite filmmakers, like generally mm. speaking, um, certainly working filmmakers. Yeah. And, you know, a huge body of work, very few misses, in my opinion. I mean, everybody has their opinions, but, you know, generally speaking, um, I would say more of their movies are good than bad. And even their bad movies are better than most or you know, maybe better than Kangaroo Jack, let's say. <laughs> yeah. So we'll go down the list here. And the, the directive I gave you before we did this, in, one, in case we have done this before, and two, just because I feel like some of these answers are sort of obvious, um, mm -hmm. I say go with your, your second choice, your second thought. So I have you know, in, in all cases, both of mine listed, mm -hmm. but let's start with, let's be mean. Let's start with the worst Coen brothers film or second worst in this case. Like, I think we both probably have like an obvious answer for this. Which yeah. I, I think, uh, cause we reviewed the lady killers and, and neither of us were crazy about keen it. on it. Yeah. Um, I, I, as far as Coen brothers go, I, I think that is definitely the weakest, I've seen from them. Right. Um, I've, I've never seen uh, Intolerable Cruelty. That's, uh, I think, the only movie of theirs I haven't seen now. Oh, interesting. Oh, they, they, there's that Paris Jatem, um, like, uh, anthology film with multiple directors do a bit. Oh, that I, doesn't totally. I haven't know. seen that either. But so those are the only two things. Okay. So if we're tossing out the lady killers. Yeah, I think that's the obvious answer, at least from us. Um, um oh, this is this is tricky. Uh I I think in that case, because I, I feel like Lady Killers is a whole tier down on its own, even. Right, it, yeah. It's it's significantly worse than most of their movies. I would say after that, 
from stuff I've seen, and there's a few I haven't seen by them. Um, I think maybe Hail Caesar. That's what I have on mine too. Yeah, I mean, and it's not a bad movie. It's not. It's you know, it's perfectly watchable, entertaining film. Uh huh. They just kind it. They're it just kind of treads familiar ground for them, right? And they've done everything better uh, somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of my my reason my reasoning too. It's like there's nothing about that movie that's particularly exceptional. Um, I like uh, Alden Ehrenreich a lot in that movie. I think he kind of steals the show. Mm-hmm. It's, um, yeah, everybody I, else I'm, is kind of treading water. I feel bad. I, I'm afraid he's not going to get uh, his his second chance. Yeah, because yeah, Solo was supposed to launch him and it didn't. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it was not really as beloved by star Wars fans mm-hmm. um, and Hail people Caesar could come also. around to it, but they, they haven't yet. Yeah. Which I, which I think is uh is a shame because I think he is a very talented young actor. Yeah. So, I mean, there's little, there's, I like the historic historicity of it, like where it's said and like, you know, classic Hollywood and like the what early sixties, late fifties. Um, uh, the me, set pieces are a lot of fun and like individual elements are really yeah. great. It's just the movie doesn't as a whole doesn't really do much story wise. It's, it's never greater than the sum of its parts. Right. It, it, it's like there's a bunch of really good scenes, but they just they never quite come together to make a full movie. And I think they do that better when they just go the full anthology route with uh, Buster Scruggs. I, I think right. they maybe could have done that here with Hail Caesar and it might have worked a little bit better than to trying to tie all these kind of disparate story elements. I agree. I agree. Okay, let's go with underrated. What do you have as the most underrated uh, film by the Coen brothers? This is another hard one because this is one i think probably the hardest because they've done so many movies and there's so many that are great that people don't like talk about as much and i feel like they have a tendency to their movies tend to find their audiences yeah Uh, and so it's hard to say what's underrated because you know again i i feel like it it Aside from maybe the Lady Killers, I feel like every Coen Brothers movie like is somebody's favorite, right? Um, um, probably, yeah. I'm gonna say for underrated, I'm kind of torn between two. But I'm well, which say, which one is the less obvious of those two? I'm gonna say maybe True Grit. Okay, I think at this point, that's fair to say. Um. I mean, when it came out, it was a big end of the year award season kind of thing. Um, But but even then, it kind of came out at a time. It was a stacked year. That was a very competitive year. And every few years, uh, Hollywood seems to bet big on Westerns having a big comeback. Mm -hmm. And it, it never quite does the way I think Hollywood wants it to. Um. Yeah. And I and this felt like kind of of that time too, where there was like kind of a lot of westerns brewing, because um, there wasn't a like wasn't this the same time as like 
310 to Yuma and the assassination of Jesse James, like weren't far off from this. Well, um, this was what, 2009, I want to say? Uh, 2010. 2010. So, yeah, 310 to Yuma would have been a couple of years before that. Um, uh, assassination of Jesse James would have been 07. 07 yeah. was like, all, that was like the broody dark Western year because that's when No Country came out. That's when There Will Be Blood came out and Assassination. Uh, uh, yeah, 310 to Yuma was also 2007. Wow, so, that yeah, was the uh, year if it was yeah. going to happen. But that that's what I mean. I, I And I feel like True Grit even kind of missed, I mean, it's, you know, three years later, even kind of missed that timing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just felt like it never quite got its i mean it was a big movie it did well but i i feel mm-hmm. like it's kind of forgotten in their repertoire at this point yeah i wouldn't go so far as to say forgotten but i don't think i don't think it's the one that people reach to as much yeah i bet older folks like it like the people who liked the original true grit and they, they go to the movies like once every 12 years for a western <laughs> sure yeah they were probably all about it. I think I took my mom to that movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a great movie, but yes, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, out of curiosity, you don't have to go into it, but what was your other? You said it was between two. Uh, yeah, I was the other one. I was debating was um, Barton Fink. Uh, I feel like gets a little. Because it's it it's like, you know, it's a pre-Fargo Coen Brothers movie. And I feel like kind of yeah. everything pre-Fargo gets a little a little left behind. And I feel like Barton Fink was like the first like Coen Brothers movie, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's kind of when they reached their final form. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I know what you're saying. Okay, for mine, my first pick was or what I thought was maybe a little too obvious was a serious man. Oh, see, I haven't seen that one. I adore that movie. I think it's one of their best. And it's one of the few times in my life, especially as an adult, where as soon as the movie was over, I just restarted it and watched it again because I was like, wait a minute. I need to like really digest that. Uh, but I, I love that movie a lot. But I think that is that would go on like a lot of people's underrated list. Um, yeah, even mean, though, I again, that was up cause... for awards and stuff. And my other pick is The Man Who Wasn't There, which is okay. another a, one I have not seen. This was their follow up to uh, Oh Brother, Art Thou? Mm-hmm. And it's a black and white noir, uh, period noir. Um, starring uh, Billy Bob Thornton as a uh, barber who is a man of few words and doesn't talk a lot. Sort of a humble small town guy who gets caught up in this big fucking, you know, kerfuffle um, involving, you know, uh, different elements of criminal elements and adultery and all the stuff that he's not equipped to handle. But unlike, say, something like the Big Lebowski, which kind of has a similar idea, but played for laughs. This is more eh, darkly humorous, but much more kind of played straight, straight noir. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's beautiful. Um, the black and white is great. Uh, they'd, they'd really kind of come into their own visually 
with No Country because that's when they started playing with color correction a lot. They started to learn how to sort of like digitally alter their images. And they like kind of use that as the jumping off point to get into the man who wasn't there. But I feel like that's a movie that's wedged between bigger films of theirs. And a lot of people haven't seen it, but it's, it's a uh, totally solid. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think both of those movies would make sense as underrated because they're, you know, a couple of the ones I haven't seen. So that makes sense. Okay. Uh, what do you have as overrated? overrated um hmm. again this is this one's hard because i'm gonna say inside lewin davis oh i don't agree exactly go ahead exactly (laughs) that's my point in fact i almost put this in underrated but i feel like it it sort of speaks for itself i feel like a lot of i don't know how to put this i feel like this is a lot of uh movie snobs favorite uh, because it's not Fargo and it's not no country, you know, it, it is much smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is a lot more internal. Mm-hmm. I just remember when I saw this, I was, and I probably need to watch it again, to be fair. I, I was kind of cold on it. Mm-hmm. It was, it was one of those where I was like, okay, this is a good movie, but I didn't, I didn't particularly enjoy it the way I enjoy most Coen Brothers movies. Um, and it, I don't know, it just, I was a little cold to it. And I feel It's a like colder film. It is. And it is intentionally so. But I feel like, again, some people might put this in conversation as their best movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I just, I don't think so. I, I just think they have so much more that I enjoy more. So when I see people tout this as one of their best, I'm like, eh, it's, it's fine. I it mean, took me a couple of watches of that one to fully come around to it. I remember I saw it like opening night at a um, college theater, not my college. It was actually in Irvine. So I had to drive across Orange County to see it. Um, <clears throat> and this particular community was, like strictly over 70 years old mm-hmm. considering it was an on-campus theater. This, this was like their little art house that they went and saw all the stuff at. And yeah, you know, it was just, it was kind of like not a great movie viewing. I got a bad seat because I went there too late. Oh and yeah. I mean, it was yeah, just that's... a whole thing. And then again, the movie is not like really a people pleaser. So I wasn't sure if I if I was loving it either. I was like, hmm, I was, I mean, yeah, yeah, it was kind of the same way you just described. Like, I know this is good, but do I like it? And then Yeah, yeah. Um, I I, I think a few months have passed and I was putting together my year-end list and I was like, I need to revisit that. So I went out and I saw it again under better conditions, and that's when I fell in love with it. I was like, Oh, okay, I I get this now. Like I understand the mood of it. I understand and, and- sort of the the parable um, parodical son kind of sure yeah. um, story. I, I, and here's the thing. I don't think it's a bad movie. I mm. just, I, you know, we, when people, when I see people talk about it, it, it has a reverence that I don't have for it. Um, so right. yeah, I think, I think it, you know, again, it's hard to say what's their most overrated because 
for the most part, I think their movies get the due they deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this one I just uh, I am a little like eh, not. But but you have to admit that hey, Mr. Kennedy is a bop. Yeah, it is, and I <laughs> often uh, sometimes just out of nowhere, Adam Driver will speak in my brain, going outer space (laughs) like that just pops into my head sometimes so yes i do agree with you there all right under my overrated i have long since stated that i think raising arizona is a little overrated Mm, see in that that's my that's my first thought on that i disagree with you on that i understand why people love it i understand why it's a classic i actually think it's like a good film in a lot of ways i just think that it's there's elements of it that date the movie more than almost anything else they've done. Yeah, I I do agree with that. And but I I actually recently, well, not re fair, like within the last year, rewatched it. Um, and it's just such a I don't know. It's a fun movie. It's a hoot. Yeah, yeah. But I'm actually going to go with third film, which uh, came out I think just right after that. It was either right before, or right after Barton Fink. I forget. I think it's before. Miller's Crossing, which is a another period crime film, kind of more on the gangstery side of things. But there's a there's a bit of a um, private eye trying to figure things out, sort of noirish thing going, like Raymond Chandlery type of thing going on as well. But of those kind of movies, like the you know the guy who's trying to figure everything out and put all the pieces together, and he keeps running into the red herrings. I think that the plot gets in the way of everything else about Miller's Crossing that makes Miller Cro- Miller's Crossing great. Because uh, yeah. the production design is amazing. The performances are great. The cast is incredible. This is one of their, this is really when they stepped it up visually in a big way. Mm-hmm. Um, but the plot is so convoluted and, and unlike say Big Lebowski, where at, by the end of the movie, you realize like, Oh, I didn't need to care about the plot at all. <laughs> like yeah, the fact and, that I was even yeah. trying to figure it out is like kind of ridiculous. That's part of the fun of that's the part of the fun is that it, it doesn't need to make sense. Whereas yeah. with um, with Miller's Crossing, you you are supposed to kind of be following it as you go. And, and I'm not saying it's like impossible, but I, I get to a point where it's like, OK, this just feels a bit more like work mm-hmm. than than I want it to like, I just kind of like, I want more vibes and less plot in this story. Yeah. Um, but everything else about it, you know, Marcia Gay Harden and I want to say Gabriel Byrne is the lead in that, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Steve Buscemi's first role with them. So, I mean, it's worth seeing Albert Finney is incredible. Um, but the, but yeah, I just, I've never, it's a it's it's always left me a little arm's length because it's it's so dense narratively. Hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, best. Here we are. Yeah. I think this is the hardest. Really? Yeah. I, I, I mean, there's there's contenders. I think there's like five or six like obvious contenders. To me, um, it comes down to three. There, there are solidly three that I'm like, I don't even have an answer. Uh, to me, it's uh, kind of a three-way tie between uh, Fargo, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, uh, A Brother Where Art Thou. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, No Country for Old Men. Okay. I mean, I definitely see Fargo and No Country. Oh, Brother Art Thou is a bit of a, it's a bit of a 
uh, uh, swerve ball in that mix. Yeah. In fact, at this point, I would, I would say that, Oh brother is maybe a little bit more underrated than even true grit. You think, I think it's fallen off more. Well, okay. And if you, I I don't know, I maybe, um, I mean, it's certainly a a movie that a lot of people like, and a lot of people have seen. I want to, I want to talk about that one a little bit. I, (laughs) that one is, uh, it's always been one of my favorites. I feel but, like it's one of everybody's favorites. It's it's a great movie. It's here's the thing about that though. Even though it is so thoroughly a Coen Brothers film, mm-hmm. uh, unmistakably so, I feel like that movie's audience isn't necessarily uh, like a film movie Buffy kind of would even know who the Coen Brothers are. Audience, okay, you're just making my argument stronger for that being their their best like i it has I a wider reaching had, had a wider I, reaching I, I, uh, uh in the same way actually in the same way that um raising arizona had raising arizona like my parents had seen raising arizona it was one of their favorite comedies and they would laugh just thinking about it I, you know when i was talking about the coen brothers i was like well they did raising arizona raising arizona yeah. and they go oh okay well we like that and i think <laughs> that's kind of how it is with with uh oh brother especially since that soundtrack was so huge and it yeah. got like got a lot of play on like country music radio. It has a very um, rural fan base. You're, you're not, I, I don't think this is an argument against it being their best. Like I, I no, think yeah. it, it has broad appeal and that's a good thing. Uh, uh, right. I, I don't know. I, to me, it's like, it has all of their obsessions. Right. Um, Again, I was kind of thinking of that, you know, signature piece discussion we had with some other directors. Mm -hmm. And and I think again, I think it kind of comes down to those three movies for me, Um, because I think they all kind of encompass what they do. Yeah. And and uh, and their range. Um, uh, Yeah, I see. I would I thought you were going to say uh no country for old men. Fargo or the Big Lebowski because those are the ones I always see as like the ones that are always hanging out at the top of the list. I and okay. sometimes people throw Blood Simple pretty high up there too. I almost picked Big Lebowski as overrated just because, but I love that's it almost so kind of it does have a wide reaching audience. Well, but, yeah, and everybody finds that movie in college. Which it's a it's a college incredible. movie. It's kind of a stoner movie, um, but it's it's also like it's also like a movie that like a lot of people love, but they don't necessarily um, have seen other movies by the Coen Brothers. It's that's true. I mean, I I think it's maybe because stoner culture has kind of um, ruined it. <laughs> I'm not- just kidding. I don't. Ruined it, but uh, but because they have adopted it so hard, it's and not that I think Big Lebowski fans are are, but it I think it's kind of that thing where it's like I don't even know how to it has describe it. It, I I'll 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 take a stab at it. It has fish groupie energy, but that's what I mean. Is it's it's one of those things where the movie is so good, but sometimes Uh you have to kind of detach it from 
its fan base and the culture that surrounds it. Kind of like Fight Club, right? Fight Club sure, is a great yeah. movie. Um, again, this isn't a judgment. Well, on it's people. a cult movie. I mean, a lot of their movies are, but it, in in particular, that movie, like you know, there's the big there's the Lebowski Fest every year. There's, exactly. You exactly. know, it's it's so mimetic. Everyone is dr- dressed up as as the dude and Walter for Halloween at some point. Exactly. So that's why to me, it's, it was borderline overrated. Yeah. Um, but again, it's just such a good movie that I, I couldn't bring myself to, to pull that trigger, but um, right. I think it's their best comedy. I mean, laugh for laugh. Yeah. It is probably their funniest movie. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, endlessly quotable. Um, neither of those are what I had. So I, I mean, I said um, no country is sort of, I think they're obvious best. Like, I mean, just from a craft level, it like is, that, it, that movie is just perfection. It, it really is. But, but I, I actually, for my second thought, I have Barton Fink. Oh, interesting. Not Fargo? Um, I, get, I almost put that on the same like tier as no country. But um, yeah, I actually, I actually think I personally prefer Barton Fink over Fargo. I love Fargo, love it to death. But I think I like the surrealism. But you of think Barton, Barton Fink. Fink's a better movie than Fargo? I mean, it's kind of apples and oranges. But but uh, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm just talking I, about personal preference, I guess. I I've probably seen Fargo more, but I really, I mean, there's still. Uh, I saw Barton Fink was actually like when I was going through their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That was an earlier one that I saw. Like, I think I saw that before I saw Fargo. I mean, um, I, cause it was on IFC all the time. It's been a long time since I've seen Barton Fink, but I remember I really liked it, but I just, I think Fargo is for, for that point in their career. It, I, I think, yeah, it's a, I think it's, pretty much a perfect movie like it is it is um i mean is it like i said they've made a handful of perfect movies i know which is insane yeah i mean the, they have a, a very strong track record overall a, a lot of directors are lucky if they get one you yeah. know and they and like they, i said there's a there's a decent argument for blood simple their first ass film yeah it was is like kind of a perfect movie yeah I mean, especially for what it is and like and the budget it that it was made for and the budget yeah yeah like it 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 does what it does perfectly but what i like about barton fink and what sticks with me about that movie and why uh i guess i connect to it, i i like movies about frustrated writers sure um and, and, you know, there's lots of different ways to to tackle that subject. It's actually somewhat challenging because it's not inherently interesting to watch somebody try and write. Um, yeah. There's been a few. I think adaptation is really good. Uh, Naked Lunch is kind of came out around the same time. It's weirdly similar in some ways. Um, but, I, yeah, I like the surrealism of it. I, I like the, so the them delving deeper into their sort of, you know, uh, devils and angels and saviors and all this like biblical stuff that kind of they blend their like their obsession with mythology yeah uh, in and the the way that they can take the mundane and make it mythic i think Mm -hmm. they do that the best in this movie yeah and i think it's it's a good blend of everything they do i mean there's really funny stuff 
There's really great performances. The period stuff is on point. And then, but it's also like weirdly eerie and even like goes into like horror territory at times. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's, it's, um, you know, subtly, I don't know how subtle, but it does everything that you want from a car. Like in a weird way, I actually think it's like maybe like the most Cohen movie. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, I mean, we, as we described it, this is kind of like when they hit their final form. Yeah. And at this Uh, point, after that point, they're really just kind of dipping back into whichever version of them they want to do. For sure. So we're in agreement. It's no country for old men. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, that's that's the uh, that's the obvious sense. But again, good good arguments for for Big Lebowski and for um, uh, Fargo as well, and Blood Simple, and a lot of other movies. Yeah, they they're fucking great directors. They do good stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into our review for the tragedy of Macbeth, Keith. I'm sure you have been in more than one production of Macbeth as a theater major. What is it about? Uh, I think I've actually only been in one production and it was in high school. Um, When we did Macbeth in high school, it was all done as like a a tenement slumlord owner. Right. Uh, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I was one of the witches and and they were portrayed as uh, hobos around a trash can fire. It works. Uh, so, yeah, I, I actually liked our interpretation, but whatever. It was quite truncated, as I recall. I mean, I felt like this movie, there was stuff I was like, I don't remember that from the high school production. <laughs> so if you're not familiar, uh, the tragedy of Macbeth is uh, it's this uh, Scottish lord named Macbeth who happens upon these witches who prophesize that he will become king. And through their prophecy, he, you know, tells his uh, his wife, Lady Macbeth, about this prophecy. And through the prophecy, decide, okay, well, let's just hurry Faye along and let's kill the king. And, you know, uh, uh, set up the his heirs, the rightful king, uh, to make it look like an inside job. Uh, so that I, you know, I can ascend to the throne. So that's what they do. And, you know, he is not a good king uh, because of the circumstances for his rise to power. Uh, both him and his wife become very paranoid. Guilt-stricken. You know, yeah, everybody yeah. hates them and everybody wants them dead and replaced with who really whoever else is eligible (laughs) um so yeah it's about you know is this did he become king because of this prophecy uh you know it is very interesting the way the story weaves magic and prophecy and and fate into um the narrative Mm. Uh, you know if he had never stumbled uh across the witches would he have become king? Uh, you know, who knows? Because that's what motivates him to murder Duncan. You know, the uh, he seeks out the witches again to um, find out what's going to happen now that he's king. Yeah, King murders his way into power, and then him and his wife feel feel guilt stricken about it. 
other political machinations occur. Yeah, and it, at that point, their kingdom has a, a ticking time clock. Right. Yeah. Um, so this, funnily enough, we talked about the Coen Brothers. This is one of the, I want to say, the first in which Joel Cohen worked alone. Now he's always credited as the sole director of all their films, even though by all accounts, Ethan is a big part of of what's happening on screen mm-hmm. and they they very much work hand in hand so maybe it's like a guild rule or something that they have to get around but in this case it is just him and both in the as director and uh the adaptation obviously by William Shakespeare which is i mean i don't think they change much other than probably stage direction uh even that i mean it it's pretty I actually I think this this version might be a little um truncated uh cuz I I think this felt like it moved pretty quick. Right. I mean when you're dealing with when you're dealing with Shakespeare it is reams and reams of sonnets and and Shakespearean dialogue. Yeah, right? I mean and that's why It's actually kind of funny cuz when when I when I first went into this it didn't occur to me immediately. It was like, why, like, you know, this this team that's so well-known for their dialogue and so well-known for their style, why would they lend that all to something that's as antiquated as Shakespeare and as and a play that's been adapted to death like Macbeth? But then I kind of thought, like, well, it kind of does make sense in a big way because it makes Shakespeare was like the Coen brothers of the Elizabethan era. Like he did comedies, he did tragedies. Uh-huh. He mixed in mythology with with the Absolutely. mundane, just as we were talking about. He's they, he was well known for his stylized dialogue. Yeah, no, um, I was when when I saw <laughs> the trailer, I was like, oh, that's a fucking no brainer. Like it was yeah. actually, yeah. It, it's kind of surprising to me that this is the first time. They've, they've attempted it. They've yeah, attempted Shakespeare. I to me the the thing that stood out more as peculiar was what you said about um uh Joel Cohen um kind of going solo. Yeah, kind of going solo on this one. That to me I was like, "Oh, have they really done that before?" Yeah, um, and and maybe maybe had it been a Cobros event then they wouldn't have done an uh, an adaptation like the sure, as, maybe, as yeah, maybe it would have been a a, a retelling a, you know a, their yeah. version of, of right like kind of like what they did with the odyssey with 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 oh brother art thou and sure, that's yeah. sort of like kind i thought that they might do more of that here and that it would kind of like be a little bit more loose with the blends. shakespearean stuff but it, it's yeah. all there um but uh, i mean I um I I think Shakespeare is as good as I mean you know obviously the the language and the and the dialogue and you know the the prose are always going to be super flowery and and beautifully written um and, so and you in, don't have in, to worry about that on that and front. in yeah I mean it's it's Shakespeare you yeah you know it you if you're not into it, you're not into it. Right. Um, but you can't say that he wasn't a good writer. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, and, you know, you, you, you always have that to lean on, yeah. whether you're a 12th grade drama class or you're 
the Coen brothers. And even if you're not into the language, uh, he also wrote really good, like stories. Like you know, yeah. I mean, he was very good at like build. I mean, it was was kind of a lot of people think of it as like reason why people have been obsessed with this particular show, with this particular play of his too. You know, this this is has all the stuff that we got from Game of Thrones, right? right. It's mm-hmm. it's uh you know these uh kingdoms and and lords scheming against each other and fucking each other over and super and, violent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It, you know, it's got fucking witches, it's got uh you know daggers and swords and femme fatales and, and all of it. Yeah. Exactly. It, uh, it I mean again, it, it totally makes sense why th- they went with this story, even though it has been adapted. I mean, even just as recently, there was that that Michael Fassbender one not that long ago. It's true, and I I uh, I wanted to catch that one, but I never did. Same, but so I think what it really comes down to, as far as like you know, standing out or really putting your footprint in the uh, sands of the Bard, is the is how well you direct your actors, how well they deliver. The dialogue. Yeah. Because there, it's I mean, more than just also... reading it off the page and more than just like, which is why I think it's actually kind of bad that high schools force teenagers to just read Shakespeare as oh, if yeah. you're getting anything out of that. Yeah. It, it, especially like, you know, in high school, you barely understand it. You know, it, it, it's, it's, right. it's, it's, tri- it's always trial by fire. I mean, obviously it's, like Romeo and Juliet's not too hard to kind of pick apart, but 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 even but then, half the, the point. These are plays. The They're and the, the poetry of it can be can still be difficult. But yes, yeah, so you wait. These are it, plays. They're meant to be seen visually. They're meant to be performed. Yeah, and and this dialogue is meant to be. Yeah, the dialogue is meant to be performed. So when you see great actors do the dialogue, they can make it sing in a way that you're not, you know, caught on the barbs of the of the of the antiquated language shakespeare to perform is very difficult because you have to find that balance i mean you know first you're acting that's mm-hmm. a skill in and of itself but then there's shakespearean acting which is it's it's its own thing like it's its own style you, you yeah. have to be able to to ha- to perform the poetry but you have to be able to perform the poetry as dialogue and as a character. Right. And I think that's where this movie really shines. Oh my God. I mean, I'll get into it. I I liked a lot of it. Um, But I think uh, Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand does. This might be my favorite film adaptation of Shakespeare. Oh, period. Certainly since uh, probably since uh, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. I mean, yeah, it's 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 up there. It's uh, I I mean, first of all, it has the Cohen's sense of visuals, right? Yeah. I I mean, the witch scene alone, uh, uh, I was just like, that's fucking brilliant. (laughs) Like it, it, it just looks so good. Right. And then you have fucking powerhouses like Denzel and uh, Francis McDormand. Mm-hmm. Getting to do, you know, two of the most, like, just actorly roles that anyone could ever hope for. And, I mean, oh my god, I think this might be the best I've seen Denzel. 
in a he's while. So fucking good. Yeah, I mean, it's he's definitely not phoning it in. It, it's a very, it's a it's a very nuanced performance, and he he plays, you know, the sort of the hubris of mm-hmm. that character, but also kind of plays like the tortured humanity, like whatever's left, you know, that kind of that idea you're sort of selling your soul for power and then it haunts you. That's the, that's the meat of that character. And he plays all the angles of that and everything in between. And, Mm -hmm. and he also, I like that he delivers so much of the dialogue. Um, And this is what you can do with a film that you can't do with a, with a stage play necessarily. Mm -hmm. I like that he plays it so close like it, a lot of the dialogue internal. is like yeah like yeah. it's very low it's not he's not you know screaming these soliloquies out or like really kind of you know um over performing them he he kind of like these lines that i've heard a thousand times yeah. even if it's not in a production of macbeth some of these lines are almost you know they're just so well known that you'll hear them out of context all the time similar to romeo and juliet yeah. in that way where it's yeah it's one of uh i think shakespeare's most quoted yeah definitely and you and then when he says them in the way that he decides to say them where it's like he's more talking to himself almost rather than than to a, a proscenium room well, i i think um it, it breathed new life into these lines where it's like i was yeah. hearing them for the first time again Absolutely. And I think I think it was so cool to also typically with Macbeth, I think you do usually get someone a little younger, not young, but um, but, you know, someone who they play up the ambition side. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas this interpretation is, you know, he's older, he's beleaguered, he he. He's like, when he hears this prophecy, I, I love the interpretation of like me being king. Like, what the fuck? Like, right. Like, no, that that's not that's not how it's going to work. And, and then, you know, or is it like I, I loved that? Like, is this fucking is this happening? Like, mm-hmm. like this fuck, you know, like the, instead of just playing the pure ambition of it, taking this kind of world weary Macbeth. Um, I thought was really cool. Yeah, I would say there's a few less surprises in Francis McDormand's choices with the character, mm-hmm. but that doesn't take away from the performance at all. It's just I've seen her be great in so many things. I know she could do this. Yes. Like yes. it almost feels like she has done this, probably has, who knows? Um, and uh, is kind of like going back to a bag of tricks. Like we know, and these are not even criticisms of the performance. I think she's great in the movie and she's really good with Denzel, but, but she, I wasn't as surprised by it. She is reliable and she is fantastic and she is great. Yeah. Especially her final, her final scene. Yes. I mean, that's, you know, that's the big one and she sells it. Absolutely. She's fantastic. Alex Hassel, uh, who plays uh, uh, Ross in this. I just want to cover some of these other performances because oh, there's yeah. so many. Um, he's oh, really yeah. good in this. Brendan Gleeson, not in it for very long, but good when he is. Uh, Corey Hawkins steals a few yeah. scenes in this yeah, as as Macduff, the the uh, uh, the countering kingdom. He 
In fact, there's one scene with, with some subpar acting. I'll point it out. And you probably know which one I'm talking about. But it's, it's the scene with his wife and child when they're alone. Mm-hmm. It's the only scene with them. It's the only time you see them. The kids kind of feels like a kid who just barely learned how to, to, to read these lines. And the wife's okay. She's, she's not bad. She's not great. She's just okay. Yeah. But sure. his going for juxtaposing that scene to to him when yes when he, he when he de- when the news is delivered when he finds out yeah what's right. going on in in the kingdom it, uh, bl- it it was i was like this is like this is supporting actor stuff like let's well, like and, and again, hand, hand him hand him that uh that trophy because this it kind of like caught me off guard like because i know he's good and i've seen him in other stuff and but i wasn't i didn't know that that character was going to punch me that hard I, I agree. And I think also a big part of that is the visuals of this movie are so fucking good. And it is so, I mean, you know, they're experts, right? Yeah. They know exactly what the camera needs and when it needs it. And it knows when to be internal and when to, you know, when to, to pull into that performance and mm-hmm. when to to pull out and and sh- give us some eye candy and give us a cool, you know, it's it is a pretty minimal uh, set. Um, oh, very intentionally so. I mean, ex- it, exactly. it is art directed, but not in a pretentious way. In a, it feels it feels like a stage adaptation with camera work you know what i mean with cool yeah there, there is kind of i mean you, it never feels like you're watching a play per se but it it uses set design in similar ways where i mean there's lots of like kind of fun old movie stuff in here like especially if you're a yeah. fan of like silent era film or like just a, like early 1930s stuff especially like German expressionist is all over this movie. Oh, yes, yes. Um, I mean, uh, we should say that the, the, the film the is witch shot. looks exactly like uh, Death from the Seventh Seal. Like, right. Well, I was going to say there's Bergman all over this movie as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I'm almost surprised he didn't do a version of this. maybe he did. I don't know. I'll look back. But um, yeah, Inger Bergman, uh, uh, Ingmar Bergman, rather, is uh, a huge visual influence as well as like uh dryer who did the original vampire and and um the passion of joan of arc um and then like uh, the german expression and stuff from the from like 20s and 30s like there's that kind of use of of extreme lighting extreme harsh angles Mm -hmm. um uh yeah i mean visually i was soaking it all in and this is this is a uh shot by bruno Delbano, um, who did a lot of the uh, Jean-Pierre Genet films like Amelie and and oh, um, okay. a very long engagement and, you know, his yeah, movies. I, I mean, it just it oozes with style, but never in a way that takes over the performances. The, the movie knows that's what it's about, right? It is about these characters. It is about, uh, you know, it, it is about these actors and and, yeah. and and they are fucking game it is it is just a i think a thrill to watch actors at their best you know like right. it, it is uh, doing you know one of the most 
performed plays ever, one of the right. most performed scripts ever, but they are finding new interpretations of it. They're finding new deliveries still. Mm -hmm. It's it just, I think, was absolutely thrilling to watch. Yeah, I agree. I think from top to bottom, this was beautiful. Now, I, having said all of that, it does feel somewhat separate from the Cohen's body of work. Like I could see somebody being like a diehard Cohen Brothers fan and, you know, you've loved everything they've done up till now, or, you know, maybe with the exception of something like Lady Killers. Um, <laughs> but then you watch this and being like, eh, it just wasn't my jam. Like maybe like if you, I'll say, if you're not a fan of Shakespeare at all, like mm -hmm. it just, you don't want to get into it. Like you don't want to try and like, you know, because, yeah, there's a, there's always an element of you got to lean into your seat a little bit and open and try and catch the dialogue. And I think these actors make it easy because they they know exactly where to put the emphasis on the syllables and, and know where to they're allowed to kind of be more expressive than if you're just watching it in a play. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is a good entry point into to getting used to listening to Shakespearean dialogue. I, I think yes. I think yes. And no. Uh, I, I think this is well. It's pretty arty. I'll, I will say that. Well, no, 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 no. Because what I'm what I'm saying is, um, it's the actors are so good they make it accessible uh, in, in a way that yeah, a lot of other Shakespeare doesn't. But it might kind of ruin it because it's hard to find Shakespeare this good. Like you know what I yeah. mean? Like I, I so I I am almost like. Maybe this isn't a great entry point for Shakespeare. They make it very understandable, but you're going to watch other Shakespeare and, and be like, oh, well, that's that's not this. You know, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, this is definitely, uh, especially visually, one of the more stylized takes. Yeah. And and yeah, I mean, it, it, it it's sort of there's precedence for this. I mean, I will say this, even if you don't love. Shakespeare, but you came away liking this movie. Yeah, I think it would be a little harder to find other Shakespeare you like. Although I think there's been good adaptations. Yeah. I, you know, some of the I, Kenneth Branagh stuff is is great. I I really like uh, the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet, and uh, I liked um, uh, was the King. Uh, yeah, King uh, uh, King Richard the Third. Yeah, Richard yeah. the Third. Uh, that's mm -hmm. that's also that that's a good like one. Takes place in like in, Nazi uh, Germany. Yeah. Yeah, that one's a pretty cool uh, adaptation as well. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. there's definitely other good film adaptations of Shakespeare for sure. I'm just saying, like, yeah, it it is hard. Even to like find. the old, uh, if you go back to to like the Orson Welles stuff, um, you know, he he did one of the more well known Macbeths. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, um but also, you know, if it's available in your area. Go see a Shakespeare play like, you know, yeah. a live performance is is great. Uh, we we have a Globe Theater here and I have never been disappointed by one of their one of uh, their production shows. Yeah, they're I yeah. Mean, and if you live in incredible. England or London and you're in the oh, Royal oh, Shakespeare yeah. near the Royal Shakespeare Academy, you're going to see the best of the best do it. But I, but I would say more so than that, I it's it's more those other kind of like uh film influences that you that i would direct people to like if you really keyed into this yes. go see bergman movies or you know rent them or watch them go, go watch 
the trial of Joan of Arc and watch the, you know, the, the old Fritz Lang German expressionist films. And, yeah. you know, like that's the stuff that this movie is really pulling from visually. Um, but I, yeah, I, I mean, I love this movie. I think we're kind of, we're kind of just gushing at this point. So I'm giving it an A. Uh, I'm going to give it an A plus. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Yeah. I mean, I just, again, I think this is as good as it gets. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. just thrilled. Um, also, there is a fight scene at the end of the movie that is so fucking cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know the one I'm talking about, right? Like, yeah, before the big Daniel mod, there's a there's a battle, a little two person battle where I was just like, that is cool. Uh, and I've never seen it done that way before. Yes. Like uh, the choreography, it's like it's brutish, but it's not based in martial arts at all yeah it is it is just uh but it has a it has a dance quality to it even though it's not you know ninja kicks and flips and whatever it's so well done because it's so it's so informed by the The character at that Mm -hmm. time right you know he's so fucking confident he's not even going to use a sword uh and, and it is just so fucking cool and and I think that can be very hard to pull off in Shakespeare is, you know, of course there yeah, are the fight- action scenes. <laughs> yeah. Of, of course there are fight scenes and stuff in, in his shows and but- stage plays. They use, I mean, unless it's like a two person, there's a lot of dialogue and stuff. They, most battles happen off, off stage. In, I mean, in a lot that, of produced- you know, that was common for, for uh, plays at the time because yeah, you know, they didn't have fight choreographers back in Elizabethan England in the same way that we have now, you know, like, so a lot of the violence would occur off stage because you couldn't show it. Uh, And so it is hard to sometimes weave it in, in a way that feels natural and informed. And I just wanted to, uh, even though this is a gush fest, I wanted to point out that particular scene because it is fucking cool. Um, yeah, yeah, I give it an A plus. Just this is as as good as it gets. I think it's interesting that neither of us brought up the fact uh, shot with the square aspect ratio, the one three three. You know, I didn't really think about it too much. I did when I first started it. I was yeah. like, "Oh, we're doing this again." Well, because you know, A twenty four recently did that with the lighthouse, and mm-hmm. I think that worked well there as well. But I, it, it actually in in this case, I think it even like. Like the idea of what was happening, I wasn't even like considering that after a point. Yeah, ex- exactly. It just it felt, just seemed right. It just worked. Maybe, yeah. pro- probably because it is, and this is probably intentional on their part. Um, it probably because it is visually referencing classic old cinema when we they weren't using wide aspect ratios. Yeah, honestly. So, uh, um, yeah, this this has a very old feel but also still feels fresh and new at the same time Mm -hmm. incredible like i just yeah it it kind of boggled my mind yeah so i mean not officially a cobro film because we only get joel on this one but um just as worthy not cobro yeah just joko (laughs) (laughs) but just as worthy as uh the best stuff in their catalog i think this is Uh, fantastic especially um as an adaptation yes yeah for sure all right well let's talk about 
some kind of wonderful. Now, I kind of shifting gears a little bit here. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. I kind of mentioned this is a joke because we did some kind of monster as our last uh, streaming homework. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was looking it up, it kept pulling up some kind of wonderful. And I was like, well, technically, I haven't seen that either. Um, And I always kind of meant to because it's a John Hughes script that, you know, is considered part of his Brat Pack era. And I I like a lot of those movies and return to them occasionally. Um, And this is just one I never seen. So I wanted to get to it. uh, But I'll just kind of describe a little bit what's going on here. So Eric Stoltz plays a guy named Keith Nelson. He is the he's the original hunky nerd who's only <laughs> called a nerd because he like paints instead of works on actually no he does work on cars that's actually a big uh, part of his character yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah. but you know what i mean like like there was that whole cliche of like not another teen movie it's like oh your hair's in a ponytail and you're wearing glasses therefore you're not you're considered not pretty yeah, this is kind I, of a similar kind of thing with him. It is usually <laughs> played for women, and we do definitely get a similar aspect with um, his best friend, Watts. Uh, right. Because she has short hair. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Eric Stoltz, yeah, he plays this guy who's more into like art, and he's more of a sensitive type, uh, and he's in the, like, you know, English indie rock of the late 80s post-punk persuasion and um, his best friend is kind of like a, a tomboy uh, punk rocker girl named uh, Watts. Who's played by Mary Stuart Masterson. And he has this crush on the popular girl. This would normally be like the Molly Ringwald character, I guess. Um, well, maybe not all the time. Um, play here, played by Leah Thompson. No, which is kind of funny because we were talking about back to the future in the last episode Mm -hmm. and people may know that Eric Stoltz was originally cast as Marty McFly and filmed a few days and then eventually had, had to leave the set for whatever reason and was quickly replaced by Michael J. Fox. And this would have been one or two years after that. Yeah. So he develops this crush on this girl. He doesn't really know her all that much, but kind of, they, they kind of catch eyes a little bit. She has this jock annoying boyfriend, um, played by Craig Sheffer uh, named Hardy, um, who's like the rich, you know, quarterbacky douchebag stereotype you see in a lot of these type type of movies. And uh, I don't think he's a quarterback, but he's yeah, like rich, um, like kind of yuppie. Yeah, 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 and he's supposed to be like you know super popular or whatever, and and. They're kind of going through their own drama, uh, you know, Leah Thompson and this this uh, this asshole boyfriend. And so she what starts to happen is, is she kind of shows some interest towards Eric Stoltz, who's kind of making, you know, very light advances um, to see if maybe they would like to go out or whatever. Um, and I guess the question that the tension of the film is, is she really into him? Does she really want to like, uh, you know, figure herself out on a deeper level or whatever with the, with the Eric Stoltz character, or is she just doing this to annoy her abusive boyfriend and show him what's what? Mm-hmm. Um, all while this is their senior year, 
and uh, Eric Keith's uh, father, uh, played by John Ashton, who we just saw on Midnight Run, is trying to get him into into college because he doesn't want you know him to live this blue collar life and he wants to like blah 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 you know show that he has the potential to pull himself up to you know, more than what they have even though i don't feel like they don't look all that poor it's a pretty decent house they're in yeah, well yeah they were i mean so this is also like in the valley so you know they're like right solidly middle class whereas you know like uh the the boyfriend is like fucking rich you know yeah and i guess this is this is definitely sort of tapping into that like 80s yuppie era where where there was a sort of uh reaganite obsession with going for the gold and becoming a, a professional and you know going to uh you know uh an expensive college and wearing that like a, a thing of pride or whatever that's you know contextually happening in the background of of this movie um, so yeah, that's kind of what it's about. It's he, he's kind of going after this the popular girl while his best friend secretly holds a crush on him. Um, this is, I mean, this is pretty in pink gender swapped. It's pretty in pink gender swapped, and it also kind of reminded me of that uh, Valley Girl movie we watched with Nicolas Cage. Like the plot is very similar to that as well. Like, yeah, a know, little bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, like that one's kind of played a little bit more for laughs i guess but yeah this, this movie is like is has a lot a lot more of sort of the teen melodrama stuff like that uh hughes was capable of doing yeah although uh john hughes wrote it and it definitely feels like a john hughes script mm-hmm. um i don't know about the director though uh eric dutch yeah i, I or, felt like or howard sorry howard dutch who also directed pretty in pink Oh, interesting. I felt like it's interesting to me that Pretty in Pink came out first because this one felt somehow like a little more dated to me. Um, I don't know. It just it was as as far as that goes, it I, it, it didn't have some of the zing. Maybe it was because they were trying to play some of the stuff a little more for drama. I think that was kind of the idea. Oh, like, I, I'll tell you what it is, what mm-hmm. what it really was. Uh, it's that Eric Stoltz, his character is really boring. Uh, yeah. like, I get, I kind of get why, you know, he had to be recast a, a, as, uh, uh, Marty McFly because he, he's trying, I mean, he's trying here, but it, it just, a lot of his choices are pretty, um, just basic, you know, like the, the character doesn't really give you a lot to cling on to other than he's. You know, he's a good looking guy. Uh, and I get that he's like artsy and he's more sensitive than, you know, the the guys like the the bullies. But he's just kind of there for. Yeah, he's 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 kind of a empty character. It's it's ciphery to the point that it's almost non-existent. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I feel like all the characters that are kind of around him are just more interesting. Like, I mean, to me, you know, the, the grounding point of this movie was Watts. Like, yeah, uh, she was definitely the more interesting character and had the more interesting, uh, character arc, but also, you know, uh, Keith's kind of a shitty asshole and, uh, the way he's, 
he's not intentionally sort of playing these women, but um, this movie's pretty dated. It has some very uh, 1980s ideas of gender politics. and Right. Um, I think you'll see that in a lot of John Hughes stuff, even sure. his best stuff. I yeah. mean, certainly Weird Science is not a movie that'd be made now. For um, sure, yes. Uh, and yeah, I mean, even his best movies, like like The Breakfast Club, there's some like not great gender politics happening. Yeah, um, I, I it just it seems particularly on display here because yeah, of- I mean, it's it's kind of weird, like taking this like the the Pretty in Pink template and just like flipping it. And seeing what that does, even if you were to get the best actors in these roles, which I, the cast is good. Yeah, like, they're they're fine. They're just in in the case of Eric Soltz, I and I like Eric Soltz. I've seen him be great in other movies. Here is just doesn't have anything to work with. Exactly, um, and yeah, it, it doesn't feel like he's really being directed to like you know like if you if the if you had put uh, Ferris Bueller in that in that character's shoes instead of this wet napkin exactly then yeah. you know you would have a much more entertaining interesting movie but or hell yeah, they're, even they're trying even, to make him so they're uh, trying I mean, to make him this like this ideal you yeah. know this is in in a way in a weird way this is like pre-twilighty feeling yeah yeah um, it definitely has that feel because it is like yeah they're trying to make him very even though pretty and pink was like more geared towards a female audience, let's say, I feel like this movie's way more purple in that it's just kind of syrupy and the characters are really only motivated by things that are happening in the script because the script says they have to happen. Yeah, exactly. There there isn't a lot of character here. I actually feel really bad for Mary Stewart Masterson because she, she built a character. Like she, she's like in it. She's, she gets, she actually like emotes a lot in this movie in a way that feels very real and very sensitive. And in a way that felt very believable. And, and, uh, but then her character on page, which she, you know, obviously has no control over, just makes ridiculous decisions that make no sense to the character that she built off the page. Well, and the way the movie ends, I'm like, really like it makes no sense but there's also like yeah i don't know there's like not a great ending either no, way there's but i feel like they kind of write themselves into a corner because the way the way they build up him and uh leah thompson like you feel like they have to get together but also you don't want him to you want him to be with watts because she's the much more likable per you know not not that leah thompson wasn't likable but uh she like you said she actually had a character she has a yeah. whole thing going on uh i also i will say i really liked elias codius in this movie yeah i give that guy the whole movie as far as yeah, i'm concerned he's great i mean he's like he like walked off the the set of suburbia yeah. and then like <laughs> and ended up here somehow but he's i loved every scene he was in uh yes uh but that's what I, this movie was missing it was because john hughes's characters are usually a little more idiosyncratic 
And so I think right. that's why this one feels a little flat is like they're they're Mary suing Keith so much mm-hmm. that it's just boring, right? It, it's not interesting. I don't care. And, you know, you needed just something a little more interesting at the center of this movie. Yeah, I think almost if he had if he had not ended up with anybody, if like his terrible decision was just as like very like the now take. Well, we're also like, viewing this as a, yeah, adults in twenty in twenty twenty two. Like if they made this again, this would be the ending, as he wouldn't end up with either of them. Well, and um, I, mean, I also had this alternate movie that was going on in my head, um, where the reason uh, Watts was so upset was because she actually had the crush on Leah Thompson the whole time. Oh, that would have been so much better. Um, and it, and <laughs> we're like, oh, and the movie's like trying to lead you to believe that it's she's mad because she has a thing for Eric Stoltz, but actually, you it's revealed in like the third act that she's like been obsessing about this girl since forever. Yeah, like that's that, that that's been, the movie that I think makes more sense given what everyone's would have been doing. Just way more interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, also, I've never been like so upset at a teenage character as I was at Keith at the end of this movie. <laughs> oh my god! I and then when the dad is, uh, I I was like, oh god, I'm firmly in my thirties because I definitely. Mm. Uh, am siding with the dad a lot more in this conversation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But man, I was just so pissed. I was like, what the fuck are you doing? You idiot. Anyway. Yeah, John Ashton is, is great in this, by the way, as a dad. Yeah, he is. He, he's, uh, you know, he plays that. He plays the eighties dad in a way that's like, it's not overbearing and boorish, but it, you can see what, yeah, he's he seems like a very relatable dad. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the characters are kind of one note. Doc, yeah. But I think that he he finds a lot of nuance in that role. Um, there's things to like about the movie. I just ultimately, for me, it's lesser of the Hughes stuff from this time. Yes. Yeah. And even, you know, plot wise, just watch Pretty in Pink. It's this movie, but better. Yeah, absolutely. And I, with more I, memorable I, characters. And it also like that movie is it blends comedy and drama as well, but I think does so way more successfully. I think uh, this movie just kind of, it's interesting ish. And, in, you know, to see some of these actors so young and doing stuff at this age and, you know, what we, we we'd later go on to see them do bigger and better things. But outside of that, I don't know if it's, if there's really much to it. Yeah, exactly. It's funnily enough. I didn't know this, um, but Leah Thompson actually married the director and they're still married today. Interesting. Um, So what do you have for the next streaming homework? It is impossible to find a movie that you haven't seen So I decided let's dip into this era of Disney that is kind of blind spot for us. Uh Um, uh, And I suggested we watch Treasure Planet. Yes, this is one of the later 2D animation Mm -hmm. eras. Yeah, Yeah, definitely an interesting time for Disney. So uh, we'll at least have that. Yeah, you know, it had it come out when I was, I don't know six years younger or even more, I would have, 
I would have definitely seen it. But because I was already probably in high school when that movie came out. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I was, um, you know, I missed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. As did a lot of people because they almost quit doing those kind of movies after that. For sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think this was. Yeah. Th- was this the last one before uh, Princess and the Frog? Uh, might have been Home on the Range was after was after this. It's in that that little pocket of time like that, Atlantis, Home on the Range. There yeah. were a few things, you know, that kind of went nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we'll talk about that Treasure Planet. So if anyone's seen that or have anything to add to the discussion from this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media. Um, Twitter and Instagram at MacGuffinPod. Um, you can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. If you want to read the movie reviews I do for the Idaho State Journal, best way to go about it is go to the Idaho State Journal's homepage, find their arts and entertainment tab. Uh, my reviews are shuffled in there. Um, and what else? Um be sure to leave us a star rating and a one sentence review on whatever podcast app you're using, uh, whether it be iTunes, Spotify, uh, Stitcher Radio, Player.fm, or Google Podcasts. We're on all of it. Um, and even just giving it a star rating, even if you don't want to write something, helps uh, push us up a, in the algorithm a little bit in our selected TV and entertainment category. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, uh I think I think that's it. Uh you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. You can also follow my art account at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Yes, and that is the episode. By the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. Bye.